Those of you that were at the wedding ceremony yesterday will remember as I presented the Bible to uh, Kevin and Caitlin, uh, I mentioned that at the coronation of a British monarch, hopefully at King Charles next year, uh, a Bible is presented and among the words uh, spoken that this book is the most valuable thing that this world affords. How valuable do you consider God's Word? Do you value it? Do you treasure it? Because the way you treasure it is not by putting it in a case, but by uh, reading it. Uh, but it's a wonderful book, isn't it? This, this book that God has given to us, the 66 books of the Bible, the Old Testament, 39 books telling us of God's plan of salvation, uh, his uh, plan to save a fallen man, even though man sinned, seemed as if God's plans had gone astray, uh, yet uh, there was a plan all along to bring salvation, and the Old Testament unfolds that plan and prophecies there as we go through. And when we get to the New Testament, of course, we get the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, you're well aware, I'm sure, that nearly half the New Testament uh, consists of those Gospels. I actually counted the pages this morning, about 43% of the New Testament uh, consists of the four Gospels. These wonderful accounts of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, looking at it from different standpoints there, uh, sometimes things are repeated in the Gospels, sometimes very similar, sometimes slightly different uh, things. Uh, very few things appear in all Gospels. Uh, I think the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. Um, of course, there's a lot of space given in all of them to the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I think uh, well over or about 40% of the uh, Gospels uh, are given to the, uh, the period around and just following the death uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. When it comes to the birth, uh, there's a considerable variation. I don't think there's any material that's duplicated in the four uh, Gospels. There's all distinct uh, material. Uh, if you take Luke, which I suppose is, uh, has more material on the birth of Jesus, you get the uh, accounts of the birth of John the Baptist, uh, you get the angelic appearance to, to Mary, uh, you get uh, Mary's visit to Elizabeth. Uh, you get the actual account. The only, the only account, actually, that describes the birth of Jesus uh, in Luke 2. Uh, and then, of course, the uh, angelic appearance to the, the shepherds, telling them that uh, today is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the praise that comes from the angels and the visit of the shepherds uh, to the stable. And then you get the account of uh, the uh, purification rites, which had to take place uh, for a male child 40 days after birth. Certain offerings to be given for a female child. It was 80 days uh, there, but that account is, is given. You may look at uh, Mark, and uh, no account of any detail of Jesus' birth. It focuses on his, uh, the action and the words, uh, the works of the Lord and so on. Uh, but when you come to Matthew, again, uh, quite a bit of material. You get the angelic appearance to uh, Joseph. But most of the material is given to the visit of the, the Magi, the wise men. 
which took place at least six weeks after the birth of Jesus. Some of you might say, why do you say that? Well, because the very night the wise men came, uh, the angel appeared to Joseph and said, flee to Egypt that very night. So uh, unless uh, it was well after that 40 days, uh, there wouldn't have been the opportunity to go to the uh, temple in after 40 days to fulfill the purification rites. Uh, so as they went immediately after the visit of the wise men, it had to be at least 41 days, we might say, uh, six weeks, uh, maybe longer, uh, the wise men came. Now the only thing about that, it spoils the traditional view of the nativity scene, doesn't it, with the, uh, the magi and the shepherds all bowing down together at the, uh, the cradle of Jesus. Uh, I'm sorry, it didn't happen. Um, but uh, what is there is important. Now, when we come to John, uh, a lot less material, basically one verse. If you'd like to turn to John chapter 1, and verse 14 reads, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word becoming flesh. That's really literally what an incarnation is, becoming flesh. And there's the account. So let's read the first 14 verses of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and to his own, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John's account is very brief but very profound and the figure we see in these opening verses is described as the Word. Now that's obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. Just a few verses for example from uh, Revelation 19. Uh, John says, I saw heaven open, behold a white horse, the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And verse 9, 16 again, his name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So that's the term by which he's known. Why is he called the Word seems a strange way, doesn't it, to describe someone, uh, uh, the Word. 
Um, what is word? Well, it's a means of communication, isn't it? We, uh, we speak together, even if we just use one word. Hello! Uh, we're communicating. We're making ourselves known. We're uh, trying to address uh, somebody. Uh, it's what is spoken. And as most of you will know, the, uh, the Greek word is uh, logos, from which we get our word logic, reason, purpose. Uh, Christ is the sum total of God's purposes. Christ is the sum total of what God wants to say to us. All his purposes center in Christ. So you can see why he's called uh, the Word. So what John tells us about the Word is very important. And uh, let's note uh, what he said. Now Carl touched on some of these things last Wednesday and stole half my sermon. Uh, But it (laughs) Such wonderful material doesn't hurt to repeat, does it? Go over uh, again and again. Let's note what John says. Uh, In the beginning was the Word. And as we saw Wednesday, that immediately takes our minds back to creation, doesn't it? Uh, Jesus was there in the beginning. It doesn't mean he had his origin there. Uh, At the beginning, when creation took place, Jesus uh, was already uh, there. Uh, there's a beautiful parallel in, in, uh, in Proverbs uh, 8 where wisdom is personified. Uh, that is, wisdom is almost treated as if it's a person and the description uh, given there. Let me read a few verses from Proverbs 8, from verse, uh, well, verse 12. I wisdom dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. And then talking about creation, verse 27, when he established the heavens... I was there when he, that is God, drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, delighting in the children of of men. It's hard not to read that and see a wonderful parallel uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Wisdom uh, personified, and that's perhaps expressed in this expression here, uh, the word. So Jesus, the baby in Bethlehem's manger, did not have his beginning then. Uh, he existed before creation. He always existed. He's eternal. When he says in the beginning, it doesn't mean that Jesus had a beginning. Uh, He is eternal. He always existed. Then John tells us that the Word was with God, face to face with God, in the presence of the Almighty. We saw it again in Proverbs 8. uh, I was beside him like a master workman. I was with daily his delight, rejoicing before him uh, always. Uh, There was a relationship with God, of course, that was unique, that no one else had. We have a relationship with God. That's a a great privilege, a blessing, but the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ with the Father, of course, is uh, absolutely unique, a relationship that no one else uh, ever had. So he was with God. But then John says he was God. He was with God, and yet... He is God. That that boggles the mind, doesn't it? 
when I'm with my wife, I'm not my wife. We are distinct. Uh, we are separate uh, people. So there is a, a distinction between the Word, Jesus, and, and God, uh, the Father, and yet there is an identity uh, there. Uh, he is distinct, and yet he is God. I say, this really boggles the mind. How do you grasp that? Uh, we've got here two vital doctrines. Uh, first, the deity of Christ. He was God. He is God. Never ceased to be God. That is clearly taught in uh, John 1. But also we have here the plurality of the Godhead. Two distinct persons who are God. He's with God as well as being God. And of course we speak of the doctrine of the, the Trinity. We worship one God and yet three persons. Not three gods. Uh, Muslims would tell us we believe in three gods. No, we believe in one God and yet that God uh, is divided into three persons. There is unity. There is diversity. Realize the Spirit is not mentioned here. He is mentioned in verse 32. So we do have the three persons of the Godhead mentioned in John uh, chapter 1. This is one of the most fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, the doctrine of the Trinity. It's one of the most difficult doctrines, one of the most mysterious doctrines, and yet one of the most basic doctrines of the Christian faith, the doctrine of uh, the Trinity. Of course, uh, it's a stumbling block to Jews. Uh, it's anathema to Muslims. Uh, brings confusion to Jehovah's Witness and others that just uh, deny uh, that doctrine. It's profound but clearly taught here. And the implications, surely, for Christmas are enormous, aren't they? Uh, we can get very sentimental about Christmas and the baby Jesus uh, can't we? But we mustn't forget that this one surrounded by so much sentiment is God. The baby Jesus was God there in the manger. Uh, no wonder the angels declared his praise and worshipped him. No wonder the wise men bowed down before him and worshipped him. We need to ask ourselves, do we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I know we would say we worship when we gather on a service on a, uh, a Sunday morning or uh, evening, but when we're considering the Christmas story, do we worship the one who was born that he deserved? He is and deserves. He is uh, divine. He is God. He is also the creator. Notice that in verse 3, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Not only was he with God at creation, he was the creator. And that's given us so many times in the, uh, the New Testament and we can't unfold all these details. He's the source of life there in verse 4. In him was life. The life was the light of men. So this is the one who entered the world at Bethlehem. Born of a humble village girl, Born in a stable. Again, I ask, do we give him the glory due his name? There is so much flippancy, is there not, at the Christmas 
period. So little reverence. He was Lord in eternity. He was Lord at his birth. He's Lord now. We ought to worship him. We ought to give the honor that is due to his glorious name. But then the second main point here is that the word became flesh, down in verse 14. He became true man. He was born. He became something that he wasn't before. It wasn't a change from one thing to another. Some things are like that, aren't they? If you think of the lifespan of a, a butterfly or moth, they start as an egg and then they... Uh, develop into a, a larva, a, a caterpillar, and when it becomes a caterpillar, it's no longer an egg. Uh, when it becomes a chrysalis or the uh, pupa, uh, it's no longer a, a caterpillar. When it becomes the uh, main butterfly, the imago, as they uh, call it, uh, it's no longer a, a, a pupa, uh, is it? So there's a change from one thing to the other. But that was not as it was with Jesus. Uh, if you wanted to draw a parallel, you might think of someone uh, becoming a soldier. Um, I was a young man. I had to do two years military service. So I was a, a young man. I became a soldier. But I didn't cease to be a young man. Uh, I was a soldier as well as a young man. And when Jesus became flesh, when Jesus became man, he did not cease to be God. He was both God and man. And again, these are uh, important truths we need uh, to see. God and man, one person, two natures. Now today, the humanity of Jesus is, is rarely uh, disputed. The, the deity of Jesus is certainly uh, disputed, but not his humanity. Uh, but strangely, in the time of the early church, it was, the humanity was probably disputed more his deity. After all, with Greeks and Romans, gods were ten a penny. So to say Jesus is a god, well, we've got all loads of gods ourselves. Uh, but there were those, even professing to be Christians, uh, who said only what is spirit is good. Uh, anything of the flesh uh, is evil. So Jesus couldn't have had a physical body. Uh, he seemed to have a body, and so they were called seemists or docetists uh, there. Uh, but they denied the humanity uh, of uh, Jesus. But uh, both, his deity and his humanity, are vital. We need to believe uh, both of these uh, things, both essential. But think of the change involved for, for Jesus. Before his birth, he filled the universe. At his birth, he's confined to a human body and a baby's body. Of that. Before his birth, he was Lord of heaven. At his birth, he became a serpent. My father's greater than I. I can't do anything without my father's help, whether it's speaking or uh, performing miracles. Uh, before his birth, he was all powerful. At his birth, totally dependent on the Father. Now, he didn't abandon his attributes. But as the theologians say, he laid aside the independent exercise of attributes. So uh, unless the Lord, his Father, enabled him to perform miracles, to, to, to uh, display divine power, he didn't do that. He was utterly dependent upon uh, the Father. But again, what, a, what a, a transformation. Before 
He enjoyed all the glory and splendor of heaven. At his birth, he endured the smell and the degradation of a stable. We might ask, why was all this necessary? But evidently, his humanity is just as important as his deity to accomplish his mission. Well, what was his mission? Well, Paul tells us that in uh, 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now that was a mighty task, was it not? To save sinners. When you think of the, the state of our hearts by nature, and uh, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to transform us. Uh, what a, a marvelous task. What a mighty task. It needed wisdom that only God could provide. To qualify as an adequate Savior, he needed to be perfectly holy. Only God could produce that. To die and rise from the dead, he needed a power that only God could provide. But it was just as necessary for him to be a man. Now you might say, well, why is that? Couldn't he have saved us from heaven without leaving heaven? Couldn't he have exercised divine power and brought about salvation? Let me give you four reasons why he had to be a man. First of all, he had to keep the law of God. Had to be keep the law of God. Uh, had to keep it as an example to us. He says in John 15.10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. He was an example to us in his obedience to the commandments of God. He had to keep the law to qualify as a perfect substitute if Jesus had only sinned once, his death would have been for his own sin. He couldn't have died as a substitute for others. Uh, he had to, be, uh, had to keep that law to qualify as a perfect substitute. Then he had to keep the law on behalf of his people. We need a perfect righteousness to satisfy God. That only comes through Christ. Uh, we might live holy lives but that is never enough to satisfy a perfectly holy God. There needs to be a perfect righteousness that only comes through Christ. Righteousness that is imputed to us. And a righteousness that can only be imputed if Jesus himself had lived a perfect life. It's what we refer to as the active obedience of Christ. He had to keep the law for us. The law was given to men and Jesus had to be a man to keep it. And keep it he did, praise God. So Jesus had to be a man to keep the law. He had to be a man to identify with his people. There's a wonderful passage in Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children shared in flesh and blood, he himself, this is Jesus, likewise partook of the same thing that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through, through fear of death were subject to lifelong, lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, 
but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. If Jesus set out to save angels, he would have become an angel. But he set out to bring salvation to the human race, men and women and children. And so he became a man. He took upon himself flesh and blood. So he identified with his people in that way. And of course, as a mediator, he had to identify with both parties, God and man. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, if you have an industrial dispute, you know, you've got the, uh, the workers asking for a 10% pay increase and the employers uh, offering a 3%, uh, you bring in a mediator uh, and he's got to see both sides and uh, try and uh, deal with both sides and bring about an agreement. And Jesus as a mediator between God and man had to be both God and man. Then he needed to be a man to be our priest. Again, we see that in Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore he had to be met like his brothers in every respect, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The priest identifies with the people. He's to sympathize with the people. Uh, he's to pray for the people. He's to identify with the people, and uh, for that reason, uh, he became our priest. A priest represents men before God, uh, and he took on uh, that role. He needs to understand them and sympathize uh, with them. We see that in Hebrews 4:15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So he had to be a man in order to sympathize with us, to be a priest, to represent us before God. And then fourthly, he had to be a man to die. It's very clear, uh, is it not? Uh, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So he had to be a man to, to die. It was particularly in his death that Jesus was to save his people from their sins. And for this he obviously had to become flesh. A spirit can't die. Uh, he had to have a body, so he became flesh. So as he came to this earth, he took that human body that would bring him suffering and death. He came in human form. He came to die. That was clear from the beginning, clear from the Old Testament prophecies. He came to die, in the uh, words of the title of a book. He was born crucified. Right from the beginning, that was his goal, was to go to Jerusalem, to go to the cross. He knew that, and as he 
spent time with his disciples toward the end of his ministry more and more. He brought that out and told them clearly he was to go to Jerusalem. He was to be betrayed. He was to die. He would rise from the dead, yes, but he was to die after suffering at the hands of the Jews. So an amazing humiliation and condescension and love to the world, the everlasting God became flesh, became weak, subject to the death for the purpose of saving his people. See, that's why he was born. He died for their sins. He took their punishment. He bore God's wrath due to them, to us, that we might go free. So I ask you, what is that to you? What is the birth of Jesus to you? Just a an event that uh, gives us opportunity and occasion to uh, have a good time at uh, Christmas? Uh, Is it a time for tinsel and merrymaking? Uh, Surely it should be a time for humiliation, uh, for praise, for worship. Uh, And how wonderful it could be for some a time of salvation. It was for me, Christmas Eve, 68 years ago, uh, the Lord dealt with me and drew him, drew me to himself. Wouldn't it be wonderful if someone here could say, I was converted at Christmas, 2022. It may not be Christmas Day, it may not be Christmas Eve, it may be Sunday the 18th of December, uh, but how wonderful if, if today could be a day of salvation for some as you come to realize the significance, the importance of the uh, incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, coming in flesh, coming in human form that he might die and bring about salvation. But for all of us, certainly may the Lord help us to just be amazed at the incarnation of Jesus, all that it involved, all that it has brought to us. May we never cease to be filled with praise and worship for the Lord's goodness to us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, some of these events and some of these things that we've considered tonight are indeed mind-boggling that Jesus could be with God, yet at the same time be God, that he was divine and yet he came in human form. As we see, he came in human form that he might die, die for his people, die for those who had rejected him, cast him out of their lives, neglected in any way to consider him. And yet, Father, he came for such to lay down his life, to die, to shed his blood for their salvation. Oh, Father, we would pray for each one here, or even those that might be Uh, listening, live streaming, uh, that they might indeed consider their true condition and just be amazed that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Lord, may some sinners be saved this very day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll sing 219.